But uh, here we are. Um, my pleasure. If you don't know me, my name is James. I, I help oversee things, youth and kids here, uh, serve on the elder team. And uh, it's my pleasure to, to continue moving us forward through Matthew this morning. And I'm going to do my best holding this microphone. Uh, it may be clumsy at times, uh, so bear with me. Uh, but as we get going, uh, growing up, my dad was a school teacher, uh, which meant that he had every summer off, which meant that summers were absolutely the best. Uh, because we went, we went to water parks, we went to baseball games, we went kite camping, we went hiking in Colorado, like on and on. Because we had summers together as a family. My dad didn't have to work. And one of my favorite things, one of my favorite things every summer was to go to literally the greatest theme park in all of America. If you're from Iowa, you know what I'm talking about, Adventureland. And one of my favorite memories of Adventureland was the Ben Uline Magic Show. Anyone Ben? Oh, Wow. Well, I just checked this week. Ben Uline is still there. The website says that he is the longest-running theme park magic show in the whole world. Ben Uline. Only in Iowa. And there's one trick that Magic Ben did every summer, and I vowed to solve it every summer. At the beginning of the show, Magic Ben, he would place two large barrels on the stage, one on the right, one on the left. And as he placed them, he would reveal that there's nothing, there's nothing inside, there's no contents inside, there's no hidden compartments, and he'd place them on either side of the stage. And then throughout the show, he'd have an assistant come out after every act or every trick with a pitcher of water. And they'd walk to the barrel on the right, and they'd pour the water into that barrel. And Magic Ben said at the beginning of the show, keep your eyes on the water in this barrel, because right in front of your eyes, I'm going to make all the water from this right barrel go into this left barrel. So as a kid, I'm in the front row, obviously, and my eyes, the entire show, are glued to that right barrel. I am not going to miss Magic Ben pulling it on me. So there I am. And of course, at the end of the show, his assistants come out, right? They come to the right barrel. The assistants tip over the barrel. And of course, there's no water in the barrel. So then the assistants come over to the left barrel, right? It had been empty. And of course, as they tip it over, water comes out onto the stage. Magic Ben. He did it every summer right in front of my eyes, moving the water from this barrel to that barrel. And that's what makes magic shows kind of great, right? It's like making the, like the, the impossible seemingly possible. It's unable to explain or, or missing out on the truth of what has just happened right in front of our eyes. So over the past few months, we've been marching through the book of Matthew. And Matthew, as he writes, intentionally crafts his gospel account so that his audience will know the truth of Jesus. And for this reason, Matthew, he doesn't write his account in a chronological way, but he writes it in a thematic way. Mark and Luke write more chronological. Matthew writes in a thematic way to establish the truth for his readers to plainly see that Jesus is the promised king. And we've seen, if we look back in chapter 8, and as we continue into chapter 9, we've seen that Jesus as our king has full authority in this world. 
And in fact, there's a series of nine miracles. If you look in chapter 8 and chapter 9, a series of miracles that Matthew purposely builds out, building upon the last one. So first in chapter 8, we have Jesus with full authority. If you're looking back, full authority over human sickness, right? He heals a leper, and there's some other accounts of his authority over sickness, And next is Jesus with full authority over nature. He calms the raging storm. And then last week we saw that he has authority over the forces of evil, casting out two demons. And this morning as we come into chapter 9, he's going to build on this theme of Jesus' authority by by explaining Jesus' authority to forgive sin. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. If you haven't been there yet, chapter 9 of Matthew and Jackie Garcia, as you turn there, I believe, is going to come up and read Matthew chapter 9. This is a reading from the Gospel of Matthew, starting at chapter 9. And getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jackie. Well, despite, as we'll see here in our text, despite having a front row seat to this unexpected healing, as we'll see, many here in the audience of Jesus, they are going to miss the truth of Jesus. Like myself as a kid at the magic show, how did I miss Magic Ben's trick? In the same way, how could we how could these people be so close to God's son Jesus and miss the truth of who he is and who he's claiming to be? And, unless we be like too quick to say like, "Ah, you guys, why would you not get it?" How often do we? How often do we miss the truth of who Jesus is? And specifically, his forgiveness that he offers us in our lives. For, for if Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, are we confidently walking out that reality in our day-to-day lives? Meaning this, do you carry guilt or shame from past sin in your life? Are, are you perhaps searching for a way out of just a crushing burden of sin? Or perhaps subconsciously or even consciously, you have this idea that you have to pay a penance for your sin. Or or maybe you believe that you've committed just far too many wrongs to be forgiven, that God, uh, that you do not merit God's forgiveness. Our big idea this morning is this, that only Jesus, only Jesus has the power to heal our greatest need. Only Jesus has the power to heal our greatest need. Let's pray together again. Father, we come to you. Lord, we ask that you would open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your words. We desperately need you. Amen. Well, our, our, our plan is going to be really simple this morning. We're going to look at, we're going to look at a healing. 
We're going to look at a claim, and then we're going to look at some responses. All right? We have a healing, we have a claim, and we have some responses. So first, the healing. Look back with me at verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 9. And getting into a boat, Jesus, he, he crosses over and comes to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. So here we have Jesus. He's coming back to Capernaum, which has become now his kind of his ministry base. And some people bring to Jesus, right, a paralytic on a mat. And they, like you or I, expect, right, Jesus to heal this man, to make him walk again. And this makes sense given just looking back in chapter 8, right, that Jesus heals everyone brought to him of every human sickness. So it's kind of like a romantic comedy, right? You watch one and you expect, you know what's going to happen in the next 99. You expect Jesus is going to make this man walk. But Jesus shocks the crowd. And I think Jesus shocks the paralytic and his friends. Because Jesus first gives the paralytic some encouragement. He tells him to take heart. Or maybe your translation says, be of good cheer. You see, no religious leader at this time would have said that to this man. Because they would have considered this paralytic a sinner because of his malady. Had he been righteous like them, as they were, he wouldn't be like that. But now we have Jesus pausing his great lecture, right, to compassionately speak to a paralytic, a sinner. But if you are paralyzed and you're lying on a mat and you've been brought to a healer and he tells you, take heart, my son, would you not expect something great to happen? But instead of a physical healing, Jesus first offers something so much more to this man. What does he say? He says, your sins are forgiven. That's a statement. And I think there's three things, before we move on, I think there's three things for us to learn in this unexpected healing. One, our greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. Two, only Jesus has the power to fill our greatest need. And three, we are saved by faith alone. So let's work through these. One, our greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. And we're not told much about this paralytic. We don't know how long his legs were crippled, how long he's been a prisoner to his own bed. But the word on the street, right, was that Jesus, the healer, was coming to town. And there's parallel accounts of this same story in Luke 5 and Mark 2. They tell the same story. And we know from those accounts that Jesus was teaching in a home and that there was a great crowd. We probably know this story, right? The crowd's so great that there was no way into the home, especially for four guys carrying a guy on a bed to squeeze through, to navigate through an overcrowded house. But, but returning home for these guys was not an option. The four men, as Mark tells us in his account, climbed to the roof they tear through a ceiling to lower the paralytic at the feet of Jesus. And this is crazy, right? Picture with me, it's an overcrowded home, kind of like if you've been in Chicago, like on the L, it's an overcrowded train filled with all sorts of people, smushed, packed together. Every one of them like straining their ears to hear the words of Jesus. 
when all of a sudden, right, you notice like specks of dirt or specks of dust like falling from the ceiling. And then maybe perhaps like a clump of something like lands on your shoulder and you like look up and you're like, why is there like a, a widening gap and I can see daylight? Like, happy, like imagine yourself in their shoes. Interestingly enough, I, I set out to prove, prove if, if this is actually true. So I cut a, a hole in my ceiling to just confirm these things. Actually, I had a leak, and so I was trying to find where it was coming from. But I can 100% confirm that if you cut a hole in your ceiling, you're going to get things all over your head everywhere. In fact, like four weeks later, I still have the hole, and I still have all these things, like soda, like uh, uh, what am I uh, All these things. Yes, thank you, Remodel. Yes, everything is like all over my house. It's messy, right? So I imagine at this point that Jesus, frankly, right, he pauses his teaching, right? And he begins to watch with the rest, like, what, what is going to happen? What is going to happen? Well, we know, right, the men lower the paralytic down through the roof. And interestingly, no words, no words are spoken. Just a broken body at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus compassionately and tenderly, right? He says, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And I can't help but think if you're one of those four guys on the roof who've just clawed through that thing, like they're like waving their arms saying, Jesus, no, 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 no. We wanted, for, we wanted healing, not forgiveness. We wanted him to be healed. But you see, Jesus knew his greatest need which was the forgiveness of his sins. Secondly, only Jesus has the power to fill our greatest needs. See, the paralytic, right, was powerless. He was a prisoner day and night to his own bed, unable to move. And I think there's a reason why Jesus chose to link this particular miracle, excuse me, miracle with forgiveness rather than any other of these miracles that we see in these two chapters. Because this man's paralysis is a picture of our complete uh, spiritual inability before God. It's not a very complimentary picture, but it's true. And the same truth we know is taught over and over in Scripture. Romans 5, 6 says, You see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. The whole reason Jesus died for us is because we're powerless to save ourselves. In fact, the Bible tells us we're not just paralyzed, but dead. Ephesians 2.1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You see, Christianity isn't just a crutch for the weak because you don't need a crutch. You need a miracle. You need to be raised spiritually from the dead. We're powerless to save ourselves from the power and penalty of sin, and only Jesus has the power to fill our greatest need. Thirdly, we're saved by faith alone. Matthew 9, 2, look at it. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, whose faith does Jesus see? It says their faith. The faith of those who carried the paralytic, but also I think the faith of the paralytic. And this is what I find so interesting and so inspiring, that four friends who carry the paralytic, right? There's no names given. There's no further account of these guys. But yet it's their faith that saves their friend, that heals their friend. It's a deep desperation to get their friend, the paralytic, to Jesus. 
Because you know what? If me and my, my three buddies are carrying this guy, and I come to a house, and there's this crowd of people, I'm going to turn to that paralytic and be like, you know what? Forget it. Maybe another time, bud. Sorry, we can't get through. But they have persistent, inventive faith climbing to the top of the house while carrying a man on a bed, literally tearing a roof apart so they could drop their friend at the feet of Jesus. That's a desperate faith in the power of Jesus. And the paralytic himself, he could have shut down this whole thing. Because remember, he would have been seen by this crowd as a terrible sinner, a cultural outcast. Yet he willingly exposes his infirmity to the whole crowd so that he could be at the feet of Jesus. That's beautiful, humble faith. Three things that we learn from this unexpected healing. Our greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. Only Jesus has the power to fill our greatest need. And thirdly, we are saved by faith alone. Yet I don't want us to miss something here that happens right in front of us in this text. I want us to go back. Imagine you're back on the roof, that you're one of those four friends on top of the roof who's saying, no, Jesus, we, we wanted a healing. We didn't, we didn't want forgiveness. We wanted a healing. Because how often in our own pain and in, in, in living in this broken world are we tempted or, or have these same thoughts as these for friends. For honestly, what, what good is forgiveness, right, if our legs don't work? We think that. Like, some of us, we, we do suffer from chronic pain in our bodies, right? We have heartache in marriages, in homes, in relationships. We suffer loneliness and despair in our spirits. We have crippling anxiety or depression in our minds. And we may wonder, right? Like, why doesn't Jesus just heal us? Like, why arthritis? Or why cancer? Or why same-sex attraction? Or why autism? Or why divorce? Why uh, financial instability? Why? 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 Some of us even have moments, I know, where we wonder, like Job, why were we even born? Friends, the greatest need for the paralytic was not the renewal or the revival of his limbs, but the renewal of his soul. And Jesus goes about filling that need. Jesus says to the crippled paralytic, take heart or take joy, be of good cheer in the fact that you who once were a sinner are now as white as snow. The paralytic did not need strengthened legs, but a strengthened heart. A heart that knew it had peace with God. A heart, hear this, a heart that heard him, that heard God call him son. That's a heart we need today. Our greatest need in life is the forgiveness of sins. Do you believe that? For would you rather be forgiven of sins and paralyzed for the rest of your life or be unforgiven? You have full bodily movement. Our greatest need in life is the forgiveness of sins. And we need to ask ourselves, do we believe that? 
So we have a healing. We have a healing. It's an unexpected healing. And now we have a claim. Let's look at this claim in verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. You see, by forgiving the sins of the paralytic, Jesus arrogated to himself a prerogative that only should belong to God. And for the Jews in the crowd, this, uh, in a sense, Jesus was claiming that, that he belonged on the same level as God. And this was blasphemy. Which is why we're told that the scribes in these verses, the religious teachers, begin to murmur that Jesus is, in fact, blaspheming. And quite honestly, they're right. Because only God can forgive sins. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, we're referring to God, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember, I will not remember your sins. Yes, only God can forgive sins. They're right about that, but they're wrong about Jesus because he is God. And this is one of the clearest claims to, to deity that Jesus ever makes. Being God in the flesh, Jesus has every right to pronounce the paralytic sins forgiven. However, the scribes could not see past his flesh. So they concluded that he was only a man making a presumptuous claim. But they're missing what Matthew has plainly been revealing to us, his readers. Over and over, Jesus demonstrated that he's not just a mere man, right? He has power over sickness. He has power over storms. He has power over evil spirits, And here's God's humor in all of this in verse 4. And Jesus, it says, and Jesus knowing their thoughts. You see, the scribes, they didn't even speak. Yet Jesus knew their thoughts before they even spoke. Because God knows the thoughts of humankind because Jesus is God. And notice how Jesus characterizes their thoughts. He said, why do you think evil? Why do you think evil in your hearts? They, They were thinking that their thoughts were reasonable. But Jesus said they're evil thoughts because Jesus had been showing them who he was, but they still could not see the truth. But even though they miss, even though they miss the truth, Jesus dispenses mercy, not judgment. Jesus dispenses mercy that they may know the truth. Look at verse 5 again. Jesus says to them, for which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. What do you think? Which is easier? Well, I think it's far easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? I could say that. You could say that. Anyone can say that because there's no way that you can really verify the, the, the authority that one might have in that. But if I were to tell the man to walk, right, that would be far harder because that can be verifiable. That's a word, right? Verifiable. Uh, Because the guy can get up and walk or not, right? And so Jesus says in verse 6 to the religious leaders, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. You see, this is Jesus' message to the scribes. He says, I'm going to heal this man's paralysis, not simply so that he may be healed and be of good cheer, but to teach you something about me. 
See, by resurrecting the legs of the paralytic, Jesus displays that he, Jesus, does have authority to forgive sins. And he did so for the benefit of the scribes and all the other bystanders that day, but he also does so for the benefit of us. So that 2,000 years later, we might know Jesus is the one who forgives sins. In preparing for today, I ran across a story from R.C. Sproul, and I'm just going to read it. It's, It's not too long. But this is what he recounted. He says, when I was a college student, I was struggling with sin in my life. I went to my minister and said, I've prayed about this again and again, but I just can't get any peace. He made me open my Bible to 1 John 1, 9, which says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I said, yes, I have confessed my sins, but I don't have any more peace. He had read me the same verse again, and I became more and more exasperated as I kept trying to explain that I had confessed my sins, but I didn't feel forgiven. Finally, after I had read the verse about five times, he said, you're depending on your feeling of forgiveness rather than the fact of forgiveness. Read that last line again. You're depending on your feeling of forgiveness rather than the fact of forgiveness. You see, when God says he will forgive you if you've confessed your sins and you confess your sins, you're forgiven. Forgiveness does not depend on your feelings. Forgiveness depends only on the authority of God to forgive sins. And so we we begin to ask ourselves, what, what holds you back? What holds myself back from the good cheer, from the take heart, from the forgiveness, the peace that Jesus offers to you and I. So just in personal reflection, um, just this past month, I was challenged, just this past month, challenged by some trusted friends and how I presently am dealing with a past sin in my life. And I was awoken in this conversation, awoken to a present reality that I currently lived as if I had... um, not been fully forgiven by God in this one area of my life. That intellectually, I I articulated forgiveness, but experientially, I was living as if I had a penance to pay for my, my sin of this area of my former life. That unknowingly, just like manufacturing this belief that I was responsible, that I had to pay off this debt. Meaning God's forgiveness was good for the first 95 but I needed to work off that 5%. I was obliged to pay that. And, then, and I found that as I, as I was brought to my awareness, awoken to this, that this, this debt was crushing and adversely affecting my relationship with God and my relationship with my wife. You see, somewhere along the way, somewhere along my journey, this past personal sin of mine was trapping me into thinking that the only way out of that debt was to pay it off myself. But the fact is, I can't, right? You can never pay penance to God. Like the paralyzed man in prison to his bed, I am powerless to forgive my own sin. And it's, it's when we trap ourselves into thinking that there must be some way that I can earn my forgiveness or work out the guilt that I experience in my life that we always rob the joy and the peace and the satisfaction we have through Jesus Christ. 
So let me ask you again, what, what holds you back from the good cheer, from the taking heart, the peace that Jesus offers you? And I, and I need to hear this again and again as I read this, this this week, and I think you need to hear it again and again too, to stop believing that you must do and trust confidently instead that it's already been done. Stop believing that you must do and trust confidently that it's already been done. So we have an unexpected healing, really a radical claim, and now we have some responses. Everyone responds to what Jesus did that day in our story. The paralytic and his friends, the crowd, and the religious leaders. First, the paralytic and his friends. If we read the account of Luke, we know the paralytic went home praising God. And this sounds right since we know that they came to Jesus full of faith. The paralytic and his friends get it right. Their goal was to reach Jesus, and they were unstoppable, unrelenting, ripping off a roof, seeking deliverance of a broken body, and Jesus grants more, right? The forgiveness, uh, deliverance from a sinful heart. And kind of lost in this whole story is, is that this man does get healing of his legs, right? And the paralytic has to respond in faith to actually get up and to pick up his bed, and he does so. And we're told as he does so, he goes home rejoicing in God's mercy. And then we have the response of the crowd. And it's an it's a interesting and mixed response. Matthew says, when the crowd saw it, the healing, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men there in verse 8. And the word Matthew uses there for, for afraid, it could mean terrified or frightened. It's the same word that's used to describe the disciples in the boat who were afraid when he commanded the storm. The same word to describe the, the people who were afraid when Jesus commanded the evil spirits to come out of the two men. And yet, while there's this terrifying, there's also, Matthew says, the crowd glorified God. I think what Matthew is maybe getting at is that there's some sort of reverent fear for what they've just seen. But ultimately, it's a response that comes up somewhat short. Because if you look in verse 8, Matthew clarifies it. He says, they praise God for giving such power to men. See, the text, I think Matthew indicates that they looked at Jesus as someone remarkable, yet merely a man, who perhaps maybe was a prophet that God had placed great power upon. Their awe was good, yet deficient. And they had a front row seat, right? A front row seat, but they miss, I think, the ultimate reality of who Jesus is they respond recognizing that he possesses some sort of divine authority, but fail, in this moment at least, they fail to repent and believe in Jesus. Then thirdly, we have the scribes or the religious teachers. And throughout this entire account, their response is really of silence. They don't say anything. And of all those in the audience, of all those uh, watching that day, their silence is most troubling. For these religious elites were the ones who had the most knowledge to respond correctly. And as we continue on in Matthew, right, we know the story. We'll see that it's these religious elites who begin to hatch an evil plan to eliminate, to take out Jesus. So their response is ultimately rejecting Jesus, dismissing the claims, and turning away from his mercy. 
One unexpected healing produces a radical claim that leads to three drastically different responses. The paralytic rejoices. The crowds realize yet do not fully repent. And the religious establishment rejects Jesus. Friends, everyone, everyone here today, everyone who's ever lived must respond to what Jesus reveals to us here in this text. Neutrality is not an option. And so we ask, how will you respond? Will you rejoice like the paralytic at the salvation and embrace the free gift of God's forgiveness? Or will you recognize, like the crowd, that perhaps Jesus has some sort of power but yet fail to repent and confess him as Lord of your life? Or will you ultimately reject Jesus, like the religious elites dismissing the claims of his authority in your life? How will you respond? You see, the authority to forgive sin is not arbitrary on God's part. It's based on him not deciding to forget all the wrong that you've done. God is not just um, a loving God or a merciful God. He's a just God. Simply forgetting about your sins cannot satisfy justice. Instead, God God sent Jesus, right, his only son, to pay the penalty for sin himself. Jesus died on the cross as your substitute for your sin. And it's on the basis of your sin being paid by Jesus that he can offer you forgiveness. So if you're here today and you find yourself paralyzed, crippled, defeated by sin, come to Jesus. Be forgiven. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're here today and, and like that paralytic man have received Jesus' gift of forgiveness of sins, then you have every reason to get off your mat and rejoice at God's mercy. Right? And as a church... As a church, I hope we take inventory of those four friends who busted through all obstacles to get their friend to the feet of Jesus. This past week, my dad told me a story of what God was doing in his life. And the past several years, my brother, actually decades, has battled through drug addiction And mercifully, God has worked a miracle in his life where he is now walking with the Lord, a redeemed life. We praise God for that. But as my parents now kind of have a new mission in life, which is now to to walk alongside other parents who 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 have kids, adult children who are struggling. My dad told me that just the other week after a time of prayer that he felt called by God to go and to talk to one of these adult kids that he and these parents had been praying for. And so my dad drove 30 minutes to another town, to an apartment complex he had never been before, knocking on doors, not knowing where this young man lived. And after knocking, not finding him, goes back to his car and just sits and prays. Says, God, I know you want me here today. Would you bring this young man? And sure enough, 
in time, this young man shows up in his car. My dad gets out, not really sure of what to say. It's a little bit awkward, he said. But my dad said, you know what? I just put my arms around him. And I knew the message was this from God. Brother, talking to this this kid, brother, I just want you to know that Jesus loves you. And he sent me here to remind you of that truth today. And that's it. There was no repentance that day. But my dad knew that he he could not do anything for this young man. He couldn't do anything. Nothing he was going to say was going to change the situation. But he knew Jesus could do everything. And so he brought this man to the feet of Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus can save? If so, let's bring all those who need Jesus to the foot of the cross. May we be a church that passionately believes that only Jesus has the power to heal the greatest need in our life and the lives of those around us. Let's pray. Father, we are tremendously grateful this morning as we reflect and realize that, Jesus, you are the only one with the power and authority to pay the penalty for our sin. Lord, thank you that like the paralytic, we can get up out of our beds and rejoice and have a newness of life because of your finished work on the cross. Bring us, Lord, into a deeper realization of this truth today and help us by your spirit to have the faith to bring others into this marvelous truth. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen.